0: The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin. On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of the show. Thanks for being here and listening and for all you do to help promote the show, but more on that later on. Right now, let's dive into the difference between things that are the common concerns of of all people, in all places, at all times, versus the things that are not, uh, tennis is an example of something that is not marshmallows, some people like and some people don't, but the common experiences, things that, regardless of whereabout on the planet, what period of time always mean the same thing. The first time you ever hold your newborn baby, the feel of someone who loves you touching your skin, the feel of watching a sunrise, the sense of hope and possibility, uh, the, the colder sense of looking at the moon on a clear starlit night, all of these things are very basic. The relationships we have with our parents, the relationships we have with our siblings, these are things that are always relevant. They are common concerns of all people. Now, we don't necessarily react to them all the same. How we treat our parents is very different across the entire spectrum of cultures on the planet. How we react um, to pleasure, how we seek out pleasure, whether there are any restrictions at all that we place upon our attaining pleasure, uh, particularly of the sensual variety. All of those are extremely localized, they're uh, cultural, they are specific. But the fact that those things all exist and that their power, calls for some measure of formal reaction from each culture. That's common. So, the the general rule is that uh, everything that is part of the common concerns of human beings everywhere, always, those are things that are seriously treated in ancient Jewish wisdom and the Bible. All of those things that are not common to all places and all people in all times, like tennis or marshmallows, uh, those things are not discussed. Well, one common concern is laughter, right? People everywhere in every time have always laughed, right? People, some people have more reason to laugh. Some people have less reason to laugh. But if you decided to talk about laughter in any of the languages on the planet, the people to whom you're speaking and who understand that particular language would nod their heads knowingly. They would know exactly what you're talking about. Right? In a way that if you gave uh, a talk in some remote country's language on marshmallows or tennis they would shake their heads they would scrunch up their eyebrows they wouldn't know what you're talking about speak about laughter everybody gets it laughing is a common human experience it always has been and therefore in the context of Uh, what I just said a moment ago, we would expect to find the Bible talking about laughter. And sure enough, it absolutely does. Where and when? Well, here's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, Out of uh, 13 mentions in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, 12 of them are in the five books of Moses— And one of them is in the book of Judges. That's it. Of the 12 that are in the five books of Moses, nine of them are clumped and concentrated together in five chapters, Genesis 17 through 21. And then there are a couple more. But the overwhelming majority of them are just in those five chapters. That's it. What are those five chapters talking about? Well, they're talking about Isaac, the firstborn Hebrew, right, and the son of Abraham and Sarah. Now, the, the, most, uh, the most important and seminal event in the life of Abraham was when Abraham, his father, understood God to be asking him to sacrifice him, and so there is the entire account of how uh, Abraham took Isaac up to uh, Mount Moriah, and on the way, Isaac said, "You know, I, I see you've got the wood for the sacrifice we're doing, and uh, and you've got the knife to slaughter the animal, but where's the animal?" And probably with with his heart breaking. Uh, Abraham said God will provide my son God will provide don't worry and uh, then uh, Abraham ties Isaac down on the altar binds him till he is immobile on the altar uh, Isaac who is or he's not a child at this point he's he's already uh, in his 20s or 30s and uh, at this uh, 30 37 I think at this point you just got to do a little bit of Genesis arithmetic to, uh, to, to find that all out. And at this point, uh, Isaac, having allowed himself to be bound, is ready to be slaughtered in accordance with God's wishes. Turns out that that's not at all what God wanted. God corrects him and says, uh, that's not what I want you to do. And uh, Abraham finds a, a ram, a male sheep in, in, in the undergrowth, and sacrifices him instead. That's the seminal story in, in Isaac's life. And Isaac's life in, is the, the area in which this entire uh, placing of the word laugh or laughter is found again and again and again in, Abraham, in Isaac's life. Well, not surprisingly, you won't be shocked to hear that Isaac in Hebrew, Yitzchak, actually means he will laugh. And so Isaac's name actually captures the the topic of laughter, and uh, we find there were all kinds of expressions of laughter surrounding his birth. Uh, his mother laughed, and there was uh, laughter on the part of his half brother, and uh, later on. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, laughed, and all kinds of instances, but the overwhelming majority of them surround the life of Isaac. And uh, what I would like to do is welcome you into my workshop while we try and dissect what's going on here. Try and figure out why is it that something as, uh, as human as laughter which obviously should appear in the definitive book of the human experience namely the bible uh, that the word does appear but instead of being distributed you know fairly randomly throughout the book you'd have thought that plenty people would have laughed right but instead of that we find that mention of laughter is concentrated heavily around the life of Isaac what is going on here. And uh, I think I will take a quick break, and as soon as we get back, why, I will then tell you exactly what the connection is between Isaac, his near sacrifice, and hilarity and laughter. The uh, website, as you'll remember, is uh, www.rabbi-daniel-lappin.com, and uh, the 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 resource that we want to draw to your attention this week is called Perils of Profanity. You are what you speak, and we're going to be talking in that program. We talk about some of the things that are impacted in your life, your romantic life, your social life, and above all, your business life, extraordinarily impacted by how you operate, that powerful, powerful organ located between your nose and your chin on your face. All of that in The Perils of Profanity that you can read more about at rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in just a moment. The blaze, on the blaze on Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement are already retired or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon.
0: We now return to Rabbi Daniel Lappin,
1: On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back together again on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I, your rabbi, privileged, privileged to serve in bringing you the revelations on how the world really works. And, okay, so, look, everybody understands that in order for a society to function, there have to be certain laws, certain rules, certain regulations. Liberalism understands this. Conservatism understands this. By the way, I'm not talking about liberals and conservatives, because some do and some don't. I'm not talking about uh, Democrats or Republicans, but I'm talking about Uh, the the two philosophies at opposite ends of the spectrum, liberalism and conservatism, and everybody understands that you have to have these rules. Now, it's self-evident on things like, uh, we're all going to stop when the traffic light turns red, when it turns green, we will go. Everybody gets that, because the consequences of violation are immediate and usually painful. And so, Little argument about that. You, you never find liberalism saying, this is an unfair infringement on people's rights. People should be able to go whatever the color... You don't hear that, right? Because it would sound absurd. The only difference between the red and green traffic light and other rules and laws, such as if a man fathers a child... He should do that while married to its mother, and the two of them should then raise that child. Now, that's a rule. It makes society work better just the way the red-green traffic light rule does. The trouble is that violating this particular rule appears to carry no penalty. It looks as if you can go ahead and, as a man impregnate women and pretty much do so with impunity if the law catches up with you and they, they will try and get uh, uh, child support but if you don't have anything and you're on welfare uh, by and large you can get away with it and what happens if you've fathered 10 different children by 10 different women so fine it's it's one of the costs of freedom uh, this this is how it's looked at the notion that you uh you move very quickly to a tipping point at which society no longer uh, functions for a variety of specific reasons uh, it's it's the same as the the traffic light rule you know if if one or two people in a city go through a traffic light once a month we can deal with that. There, there may be an accident. There may be tragic occurrences. But, uh, you know, you, you you penalize the person. You, you keep it under control. You haven't reached a cascade point. But uh, if, as in many other countries around the world, uh, far more people disregard the traffic light than pay attention to it, then it just cascades out of control and it becomes a meaningless thing and uh, driving becomes what it is and you're all familiar with what happens then. But it's not that easy uh, to to see things where the consequences are less immediate and less fatal and less dramatic. Not, not at all as easy. So conservatism says, look, Society works best when people govern themselves, when people regulate their own behavior, because in the final analysis, there are not enough policemen in the country to police all the policemen who need policing themselves while they're doing the job of policing the rest of us. So conservatism says this works better If we all self regulate, obviously to do that you have to be raised in a certain way. If as a child you are not raised in a law abiding environment, then it's extremely unlikely that you're going to become one magically as a teenager or as an adolescent or as a young adult. And sure enough, uh, we see that. A family, an intact mother-father-headed family, is the very best environment for creating human beings capable of self-regulation. Within a Judeo-Christian cultural context. That's uh, how it works best. Children that uh, just happen into the world through uh, accidental impregnations and are raised partially by television, partially by the state, partially by single moms who have many other children, fathered by many other men, when uh, that sort of thing happens in a society. And by the way, it's not just America. In England in the united kingdom it's exactly the same and the numbers actually may even be worse there than they are here i've been trying to lay my hands on the exact numbers it's a little bit hard to get clear but they're certainly close enough that uh, neither uh, great britain or the united states can uh, smile complacently and say, you know, nothing to worry about. No, both places have a great deal to worry about because, again, when a certain percentage of births are babies born into situations in which they are never going to acquire the qualities of self-discipline, Self restraint, self regulation, not going to happen. We then have a very real problem brewing there. And sure enough, one of the fundamental distinctions between conservatism and liberalism is that as conservatism believes that society works best when every individual citizen is self regulating and self disciplined, and uh, In that kind of world, it makes perfect sense to restrict the power of government. But liberalism says the individual should be free. We are the noble savages of Rousseau's, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French muddled intellectuals, bizarre thinking. And uh, all regulation, such as there should be, must come from central government. And so, obviously, stronger government is the dream of liberalism. Weaker government is the dream of conservatism. Uh, the, the, the payoff, which not every uh, conservative understands, is that the only way you can reduce the power of central government is if you strengthen the responsibility and the autonomy of every individual citizen you can't have it both ways. Uh, Liberalism says, you go ahead and enjoy your freedoms. Uh, Whatever you want to do as an individual, go ahead and do as long as it isn't something that we in government have prohibited. In general, another difference that is attached to this discussion between conservatism and liberalism is that uh, liberalism tends to believe that monetary sins are the most egregious and uh, will will prosecute and police those very heavily whilst believing that sexual areas are completely free. Conservatism tends to see monetary interchange essentially as a tool of freedom and again relies on caveat emptor allows on individuals to take care of their own financial interests rather than setting up government authority to nanny and protect whereas conservatism tends to recognize sexual uh, lib- well sexual liberation or uh, concupiscence as essentially Um, mechanisms that undermine the durability of society there's a very very big difference between the two so whereas in fact uh, right now we're seeing liberalism uh, saying me too me too we also regulate sexual behavior what they really are talking about is uh, regulating very strenuously and appropriately uh, sexual behavior between adults and children or um, uh, sexual behavior that doesn't involve a consenting woman. Again, you'd hardly think that a civilized society needs to even talk about these things. But once you've successfully, over the last 60 years, you've successfully removed the entire concept that there is such a thing as individual responsibility, individual restraint, individual self-discipline. Once you've taken that away then obviously you're going to have to strengthen government. But I don't think I have to remind you that the behavior that you find today from men towards women, sexually speaking, uh, you never used to find in 1960. It just wasn't here. Whether we're talking about uh, in, in politics, in academia, in the universities, in entertainment, in the streets. But the level of disrespect right, is is unbelievable. There used to be a wonderful TV show in the days of black and white television called What's My Line? And uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. I've, I've looked at a number of episodes. One of the things I've noticed is that whenever the contestant is a woman, uh, there's a certain gallantry on the part of the two men on the the team. Uh, but even more than that, I've noticed that at the end of each game, the woman cont- whatever contestant, but when it's a woman, the woman contestant is then escorted to shake hands in farewell to each of the four members on the team. In every case, the two men rise to shake her hand and the two women stay seated to shake her hand. Uh, it's amazing. But that kind of deference to, to women, which is an absolutely essential part of a civilized society. If you want that civilized society to endure, that used to be there. It was part, and of course, women uh, demanded, or I should say commanded that kind of respect by the way they conducted themselves. That is how you can tell a healthy society and one that is going to endure from one in its... um, uh, level in, in close to its, its, its state of, uh, of decadence, uh, society in terminal decay, uh, that's one of the great worries. And to, uh, and to not recognize that that is right now where we are in the United States or in Western civilization in general um, is to shut our eyes to the very real perils that do confront us. The website is www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there and make sure you're on the mailing list so as we can always keep you informed of what's going on, where we, when we're going to be in your area, uh, or when various new um, uh, videos are available, new books are available. And uh, also, you might want to take a look at a a resource called Perils of Profanity. You are what you speak. And uh, we we talk there about the power of the organ that we call a mouth. The fact that this is one of our key tools in social interaction, romantic interaction, and above all, yes, business interaction. Whether you are applying for a job, asking for a raise, negotiating a multi-million dollar contract, what you need to develop the fluency with is your mouth. Our ability to articulate ideas effectively and persuasively is life-changing, and this program, Perils of Profanity Are What You Speak, is a very good way of starting off an exploration into how to improve your ability to communicate fluently and effectively. So that's at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in just a moment.
0: This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin,
1: only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being back with me, your rabbi, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And laughter is one of those things that never changes. But wait, we're still trying to explore the nature of laughter. And to do that, I mentioned that uh, it is disgust, in the Bible. But oddly enough, the entire discussion of laughter is compressed into only five chapters of the Bible. Now, in the five books of Moses, there are 187 chapters, right? Genesis has the most at 50 chapters, And uh, the remaining four books um, divide up 137 chapters between them for a total of 187. Out of 187 chapters, virtually all the mentions of laughter are contained within five contiguous chapters, Genesis 17 through 21, all dealing with the life of Isaac. And what was the distinguishing characteristic of Isaac? Well, uh, the distinguishing characteristic of Isaac was that he helped complete the Abraham story. In other words, Abraham characterized uh, during his life the quality of compassion and kindness. Now, you would think that that's ideal, right? Surely, if you're going to start a new people, a new culture, a new civilization— then exactly what you need is kindness and compassion. But of course, that is overlooking the necessity of balance. And uh, anybody who has tried to raise children on the basis exclusively of kindness and compassion uh, knows that you run the risk of raising monsters, not children. Because kindness and compassion on its own means you have to be kind to people and who are better determinators of the feelings of of kindness they receive than the recipients themselves. And so I must tell you what treating me kindly means. It means complying with my wishes and surrendering to my desires. And um, that's what kindness and compassion means. It means, in other words, punishing me for things I do wrong. It's all very well to say, well, ultimately that's compassion, but it isn't. It isn't compassion means being nice to the person according to their own lights all the time. But sensible people run their lives and raise their children and run their societies on the basis of balance. And what are they balancing? Well, on the one end, you've got kindness and compassion. And on the other, you've got structure and law, structure and regulation, And if you lean too far over in the direction of structure and regulation, it becomes tyrannical, whether it's a family or a nation. And if you lean over too far in the direction of liberalism, of kindness and compassion, uh, you end up with another kind of tyranny. And that's the crazy thing, that whichever extreme that you veer towards— either the left end of the spectrum of kindness and compassion or the right end of the spectrum structure and regulation, whenever you veer towards either extreme on that spectrum, you actually end up with a tyranny. You end up with circumstances under which it's absolutely horrible to live. It's tormenting. But by steering for the golden mean right down the middle, occasionally moving a little to the left as needed, a little to the right as needed, to rectify occasional uh, errors, to, to make minor course adjustments. You can steer yourself, your family, your nation down the highway that leads towards a bright sunny tomorrow. But that, of course, is not where we are at today. But um, when we speak about the three uh, forefathers of uh, the three founding fathers, if you like, of the Hebrew people, uh, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob are who they are. And uh, again, not surprisingly, so important are these principles I'm now discussing to the durability of any group of people, any group of people that you want to maintain as a group, whether it's a business or an organization, or a family, or a nation, and a country, uh, or a county, or a city, or a town, whatever it is, it's hard to think of anything more important than steering a course carefully between these two extremes of kindness and compassion on one hand and structure, law, and regulation on the other. And so uh, Abraham was the guy who exemplified Kindness and compassion, Because right? you've got to understand that, and it's probably the right place to start. So, uh, not surprisingly, ancient Jewish wisdom points out from certain Hebrew words in the text that uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah started a ministry that quickly grew to a uh, to a mega ministry. That's right; they very quickly um, worshipped with twenty thousand devotees. They attracted about 20,000 people to their vision of um, of, a, of a single God. It's what we call monotheism. And so this was a very successful ministry. Um, yeah, 20,000 people in those days it was a huge, huge congregation. And um, then Isaac came and took over, and you would have thought that he'd have grown it to maybe 40,000, maybe 50,000 people, maybe more. Um, But, in fact, uh, it turned out that pretty much everybody left him. (laughs) And uh, by the time his son Jacob came along, the entire Hebrew people had been reduced to about 70 souls. And those were the 70 souls who went to Egypt at the end of Genesis. But uh, what about the tens of thousands of people that were attracted by Abraham? (laughs) Ancient Jewish wisdom answers that as well. And uh, you won't be horrified to hear that Isaac drove them all away. Why? Well, because Isaac's emphasis was on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, this is the end of regulation, rules, structure, discipline. And, you know, as we, I think we can all understand, uh, the message of, uh, of uh, compassion and kindness is, is tremendously seductive. And it's one of the reasons that uh, liberalism, Finds it so easy to gain adherence, whether uh, in elsewhere in the Western world or in the United States uh, or in Canada, where liberalism says, Hey, kindness and compassion from government, whatever you need, we'll give you, we'll provide. You want security? All you got to do is surrender your freedom. After all, what is freedom other than some untouchable abstract? So don't worry about your freedom, but your security will take care of you all the way. From the cradle to the grave, any need you could possibly have or oh, will take care of you. And that message is incredibly seductive. And uh, so it was. Uh, Abraham, again, not not to that extent, but Abraham preaching a message of kindness and compassion was very seductive. Isaac comes along, and again, he's the guy who agreed to be bound uh, literally and figuratively the the laws of god were like straps around his body and he accepted that willingly he presented the alternative equally necessary viewpoint of structure and laws that yes when the light turns red you put your foot on the brakes and you stop your car that's what you do uh not that i not that abram would disagree with that obviously but i'm sure you get the idea and then Along came, comes Jacob, finally, and provides the synthesis between the two. And uh, Jacob shows the way. And that, of course, is the start of the Hebrew people. That is what we call the children of Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. And uh, It is uh, the children of Israel or the children of Jacob. Yeah, you know, we're not called the children of Abraham or the children of Isaac. Why? Because Abraham was the left end of the spectrum. Isaac was the right end of the spectrum. And uh, Jacob was the one who steered us all the way down the middle, uh, keeping a firm grip on both kindness and compassion, coupled with structure and law and discipline. And uh, that is what's provided the durability of the people of Israel for these last 3,000 years plus. But now I have to explain what appears almost to be a paradox, which is that laughter seems to be associated with Isaac, not with Abraham. Why is it? Because you would have thought that structure and discipline and law, well, that doesn't leave much room for laughter, does it? That sounds so serious and... uh, and so firm and so stern. But uh, compassion and kindness, the other end of it, now that is where we should all find ourselves chuckling and giggling in glee. But no, it seems that laughter in scripture is associated with Isaac, not with Abraham. Why is that? I'm going to tell you that just as soon as we come back. But first, the website, rabbi You got that? www.rabbi And, uh over there, you will be able to make sure you subscribe to our free weekly emails. You really need to do that. You'll also be able to look at back issues of Ask the Rabbi, where we deal with a different life question every week. You can also read back issues of Susan's musings. And above all, you can also read about an audio program called The Perils of Profanity, You Are What You Speak, which is a very good place to start your exploration of how you can make your mouth better suit everything that is taking place in your life. Uh, You know, there is uh, one uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, It's the letter Sh. It's called the Shin. But what's interesting about it is that its sound is just the way I said Sh. And you know where this letter can be seen? Any time you enter a Jewish home, you will find on the right side of the door as you walk in, you will find a little box attached to the door frame, uh, lying at a bit of a slant at a 45-degree angle. That is called a mezuzah. And if you look carefully, you will notice that the, uh, the one Hebrew letter that is imprinted on the casing of that mezuzah is the letter Shin. That letter, why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is the idea that now that you are entering this house, shh, be careful how you use your mouth. In other words, the idea that God is providing here is that the mouth can do an enormous amount of good and it can also do an enormous amount of harm. You can help and heal You can hurt, but you can also help. You can do good for people with your mouth, but the dangers of what you do wrong with your mouth in speaking about people, against people, harshly towards people, and so it's just a little lighthearted reminder to be cautious with your mouth as you enter this house. Uh, anyways, a whole lot of information on the mouth in the audio program called The Perils of Profanity, which you will see on the website at com. And in just a moment, back again to discover... Why is it that laughter is more associated with the world of structure, law, and order and not associated with the world of freedom and, uh, and concupiscence and, uh, and license and compassion and kindness? And yeah, those things all kind of do go together. What's going on here? Back in a moment.
0: You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Henry. Hey, hey, hey. Is this all the chemical weapons? No, 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 no. I mean, yes, yes. Those are, those are the declare chemical. We see all those bottles? These are the ones you're declaring yes, are, yes, chemical are chemical weapons. Those are chemical weapons. Those might be. No, that's no, no. Those Just, ones over there, but no, you're not no, no, declaring no, those no, ones. No, no, no. These are not declared. This is the undeclared. Oh, okay. But you take those. <laughs> you need to take that whole box. Uh-huh. Go ahead. The morning blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: (laughs) Back again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. You're there and I'm here. Thank you very much indeed. Joining and participating in the show that boasts only organic ingredients, possibly the most organic show in the entire digital universe. Not a single artificial ingredient makes its way into the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. And uh, we're talking about why would it be that laughter has so much more to do with the world of structure and law and regulation and discipline exemplified by Isaac. What's, what's going on there? And I think one of the best ways to demonstrate that is a series of cartoons that was enormously popular between about 1980 and 1995. It was called The Far Side, and it was by a cartoonist who grew up in Washington State by the name of Gary Larson. And if you've if you've never seen these, you might uh, you might want to look out for them. They don't they don't run anymore, but there are all kinds of collections of them, and they keep showing up in books. And, and they were rather clever. What they were was um, uh, illustrations of conversations and activities being conducted by animals. And so um, you'd sometimes uh, you know you'd see cows. Uh, talking with one another uh, about people, and uh, uh, and it was just it was just really clever. It was well done. Uh, the whole the whole thing was that behind the scenes, animals have these complicated lives and uh, dense conversations with one another in which they discuss all the things that concern us, but with a, with 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 a far more uh, perceptive eye than human beings have. It's called the far side. Anyways, look, very funny. I, I, I thought they were clever. But I also realized that if perchance we found ourselves living in a world where animals really did converse, then they wouldn't be funny anymore. The whole reason that Gary Larson's far side cartoons were funny is because they violated a sense of what is. But if there is nothing to violate, if there are no rules and structures, then how can anything be actually funny? Because there's absolutely nothing to violate. And so it is for that reason that in general, uh, the conservative side of, of thinking has more capacity for humor than the liberal. But wait a moment. Surely most comedians are liberal. I'm coming to that in just a moment. I am going to explain that. But do you you remember the old joke about how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is that's not funny. That really sort of captures it exactly. Because if absolutely nothing is off the table, right, you know, there was a time a while back where... um, Uh, house fathers uh, were house husbands. It was was sort of funny. There were jokes. They even even made one or two movies about uh, men who stay at home and sweep their house and look after the kids while the women are at work. And it used to be funny, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't have made comedies about it. Today, you could never make a funny joke about that, not because it's not real, but precisely because there is nothing to thrust against you know what i mean if uh, when a runner is about to start the hundred meter dash you'll find they have starting blocks right they 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 have blocks that are are driven into the ground that the the runner when the starting pistol goes off the runner pushes against those and gets his launch you know and off he goes um if on the other hand there were no starting blocks and the surface was like ice, um, the the runner would, would propel his feet as if he was riding a bicycle frantically, but he'd go absolutely nowhere. You've got to be able to push off something, and uh, if you have rules and regulations and structure and law, then you can push off that and you can be funny because you can contradict that. You can violate what everyone knows to be normality, what everyone knows to be the rules and the structures you, you joke against and, and you've, you've got some traction. But uh, if you're on ice, meaning that uh, there are no inviolable rules to life what you thought men were men and women were women well in those days uh, man-woman jokes were funny but they're not anymore because there's nothing there Uh, and that is one of the big secrets to understand about humor that Humor plays off a sense of violating what is, what is normal, what is widely accepted, what is understood to be true and right and authentic. You push off that and you can create very funny humor about almost anything. But if that doesn't exist... If there are no rules and structures, and now we're looking at the left end of the spectrum, the spectrum of kindness and compassion, where anything is okay, where your feelings matter more than anything else, which again is uh, why we find today that uh, that when a uh, a young man, and this is recent news as of the time I'm recording this, a young man is winning weightlifting championships um, because he said he feels like a woman. He declared himself a woman, and he's competing in women's weightlifting. Well, you won't be shocked to hear that he's walking away with all the prizes. And uh, and those who uh, who criticize it are pretty much silenced. Those who support him say he, and I, this I read, I, mean, I, I couldn't believe my eyes, and I tell it to you, this is absolutely true. I read this as a comment from somebody in the school that supported the young man. Um, He feels so committed to competing as a woman. Well, that answers it, doesn't it? I mean, that settles it. Because feelings matter most to the kindness, compassion end of the spectrum. Facts matter most to the uh, structure and law and uh, discipline side of the spectrum. Facts versus feelings always is the case. But that's what humor is. Humor is always pushing against the facts. Strip away the facts and turn everything into feelings. There truly is no humor there. But wait, all the comedians that you can think of are lefties. So what is going on here? Well, that's very simple. Think about the three main categories that all humor falls into. Right, like The overwhelming majority of, of humor out there can be reduced to one of these three categories. The first category is bathroom, right? Anything to do with bathroom functions, uh, anything to do with um, defecation, uh, less frequently urination, but that's part of it, um, emitting um, flatulent sounds from the body, all of that bathroom humor, that's a key component of humor, isn't it? Second key component of humor uh sexual copulation right, that's a major part of it okay and uh and you'll see again a whole lot of jokes revolve around that, and then finally god uh religious jokes okay why is it because in a world of liberalism, the only things that are still inviolable, the only things that no matter what you say, no matter how much you believe in the tenets of liberalism, that human nature can be modified and that nothing is fixed, even male and female are not fixed, the one thing that is fixed is you're still going to go to the bathroom. And that is why that provides the starting block, if you like, a tremendous kickstart to humor because it's something to push against. Uh, in addition, of course, it is also, it enjoys the advantage that the world is always accepted, and we still do. Even, even the high priests of liberalism still prefer to relieve themselves in private. And so moving it from the private in other words, that fixture, namely that people like to defecate in private uh when you take that away and you move it into the public arena and you talk about it in in oh it's it's yeah it's sophomoric, it's childish it's off the uh the uh, elementary school playground, but yes, that can be funny and uh and then when we come to um second area, namely the bedroom, the area of, of sex. Once again, uh, in, in other words, the A section of that is number one, is that liberalism can, can do what it likes and can speak about the need to change the nature of human beings and that nothing is immutable and that people can be and do whatever they like. But in the final analysis, the mystery of life is still formed when a man and a woman engage privately in an activity. That then becomes the second starting block of humor. And again, overwhelmingly, the majority of people, liberalism and conservatism, prefer that activity take place in private. Uh, When it moves, even in its basic forms, into public, people say, ooh, get a room, right? Because Everyone senses it doesn't belong in public. And so when you turn it into something public by means of a comedian standing up and telling jokes about it, it's got that additional little fillip that comes from uh, moving it from the public into the pri- from the private into the public. And, um, and then lastly, God. Uh, again, it, it's a place you know the uh, uh, you know somebody comes to the pearly gates and and there's a joke or the uh, the rabbi and the priest and the clergyman came into the bar or whatever it is. It doesn't matter but everybody once again senses that uh, there is something real about that, even liberalism, even liberalism that dismisses faith and laughs at the Bible and mocks at believers deep down, They know it's real. How do I know this? I mean, what right do I have to say what other people believe? It's very simple, because people betray themselves. I'll explain to you what I mean. Uh, Very few people mock those individuals who happen to believe that the earth isn't round, it's flat. I don't even know if there really are people like that, but even if there are, you know, why don't you find uh, comedians mocking people who believe in the flat earth? Well, because... It's so obvious that the earth is round, right? It, it, nobody, nobody finds any need whatsoever to even talk about that because the notion that the earth is flat is so preposterous, the joke falls flat. There's nothing there. There's no there there, as they say. And for a joke to work, there's got to be some underlying reality you're pushing against. And to make a joke about the earth being flat isn't... Uh, the, it's like running on ice. There's nothing to push against. Uh, so why do people make jokes about believers? Because there is something there. Why do they make jokes about the Bible? Why do they make jokes about uh, biblical faith and, and Judeo-Christian believers? Because they know there is something there. That's why, to them, it comes out as funny. See, that's how it works. That's what what happens. And so... Um, it's, not, it's not an accident, uh, by the way, that um, not only does humor uh, bounce off uh, sex, bathroom functions, and God, uh, but so do curses, profanities, obscenities, uh, the way people swear, right? They use words that come from the bathroom. They use words that come from the bedroom. And they use words that come from God. Have you noticed that? So uh, why is it that both humor and laughter on the one hand and cursing, profanities, obscenities on the other, both revolve around the bedroom, the bathroom, and God? Why uh, Why do they both seem to hit the same sort of nerve? I think I'm going to leave you to think about that a little bit. And uh, I'd love for you to write me your, your answers. Write me what you think. Go to the website at therabbidaniellappin.com and there's a place to contact us. And uh, go right there and let me know. Let me know exactly what you think, or, or there's a place even to comment over there about the uh, the show you've just listened to. But wherever it is, I will get a chance to see it, whether you use the contact us on the website, or you go to the website and you leave the comment. Uh, I would love to see here, what do you think is the spiritual connection between laughter and cussing? Why do they seem to derive their energies from the same three areas? of bodily function, sex, and religion. Uh, Maybe I'll provide answers um, a week or two down the road. But for now, uh, take a look at the um, audio program, Perils of Profanity. You are what you speak. You will find this on the website. And I very much uh, encourage you to take a look at Perils of Profanity because so much of what we succeed in and fail in stems from how effectively we use our mouths. So a good place to start is a simple one-hour audio program. By the way, you can download it right away after the show. Go ahead and download it. You can start listening to it immediately. Uh, the Perils of Profanity at rabbidaniellappin.com. Until next week, my friends, I want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappen. God bless
0: spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.